Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling the tough challenges. Today, I am really pleased to be speaking with biographer Carl Rawson, author of Lillian Hellman, Her Life and Legend, an unapologetic socialist political rabble-rouser during the infamous McCarthy era, She, although one of America's most controversial and successful playwrights, The Children's Hour being one, winner of New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Drama, and screenwriters, The Little Foxes, which starred Betty Davis, received eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, William Wyler, and Best Adapted Script for Hellman. Despite all of that, she's probably best known and credited for refusing to name names. She famously said to the infamous Un-American Activities Committee, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashion. Hate her or love her. She was a woman who stood up and spoke out at a time when that was something that could endanger a career or even a life. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us, Carl. Oh, my pleasure. Of the many chapters in Lillian Hellman's multifaceted life, which do you think is one thing that most people are not aware of and that we should be? Uh, it's hard to pick one, but I'd say one of the things about her life, late in life, is though she's often been criticized as a Stalinist and someone who supported the Soviet Union, and that gives you the impression of someone who was against civil liberties. She was in many ways a great civil libertarian and started her own organization, which sort of monitored the activities of intelligence services like the FBI. And she called on some of the greatest legal help in New York City to found such an organization. Why did she think that was necessary? I think we were getting into the period post-Vietnam War. We were getting into the Watergate period. She worried a lot about abuses of power. Uh, And I think that she thought that, well, the civil rights movement energized her, mass protests energized her. She uh, thought of herself as a a radical in the sense of really questioning people in authority. Well, she certainly thought liberals were pretty lily-livered lightweights, (laughs) that's for sure. Yes, yes. Talk about how she felt about liberals, because I thought she had some very cogent points. Yes, I think I think the problems that she had with liberalism was the fact that, to her, liberals too often thought in terms of, well, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. Anyone who's seen her plays, they're often called melodramas because they are very much about the clash between good and evil. And I think her problem with liberals, whether she was fair about this or not, is she always wanted you to pick a side. She wanted you to pick a side. You know, you're either on the side of the union or you're on the side of management. And there's very little in between with Lillian Hellman. And I think that's the way she regarded liberals. Liberals, of course, have a view of history that it is gradual, that you don't proceed by revolutions. You proceed by very small changes. But this was a very impatient woman. And that's why radical politics really appealed to her. She was a Southern American, a Southern belle might be fair. What do you believe drove her? As I was narrating your words, I had the sense it was both anger and escape, expressing anger and trying to escape. Well, she was certainly escaping the conventions of the Southern belle and the conventions of Southern society and the conventions which wanted to turn her into 
uh, a lady, uh, a wife, uh, a family member, in its most exaggerated form, in someone like Bertie in The Little Foxes, who was really cowed by her husband and by the, the family uh, that is so rapacious. And I think Lillian Hellman wanted to do just the opposite. She did want to be independent. She did want to stick up for herself. And she she also had this, you know, burning sense of injustice. And, of course, coming from the South and having her own familiarity with the plight of black people, uh, this was just another example of how, how unfair uh, society could be. And she wanted to be on the side of those arguing for fairness, for, for liberty, for individual rights. And that made her angry when she saw injustice, and therefore she chose to act on those things. Yes, oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah, and she was a partisan. So if she was on your side, if you did some things that uh, uh, others would criticize you for, if she was on your side, she would stick up for you. How much power did she really have when she was so notorious? She had uh, the power of the pulpit, you might say. She, she had such strong convictions that I think many people close to her who didn't necessarily have those same firm convictions, I think in her company felt, how should I put it, less than genuine, less than pure. Uh, Lillian Hellman was a galvanizing force. And therefore, if you were someone like, say, the novelist William Styron or the poet Richard Wilbur, you certainly shared many of Lillian Hellman's convictions uh, but when she turned her fire on you, so to speak, it made you feel uncomfortable as if you weren't sort of doing enough. You weren't doing your part on the side of right and justice. So walk your walk, talk your talk, yeah. right? Yes, yes. She had a very steamy, in many cases I'd call it a sex life more than a love life, but the love of her adult life over decades was writer Dashiell Hammett. What a complex relationship they had. But tell us about some of the other men in her life and the man who, it appears, sacrificed his political career for her. Uh, yes, yes. Everyone knows about uh, Dashiell Hammett. Not so many people know unless they've read Hellman's biography. They don't know nearly as much about John Melby, who was in the Russian embassy during World War II, who uh, Lillian Hellman visited uh, and fell in love with as while she was visiting the embassy. A man of enormous uh, intelligence, compassion, who was attracted, I think, to Hellman because she was such an independent spirit. They might have really fierce political arguments and disagree about things, but he loved the idea that she she was such an autonomous human being. And I, I, when I interviewed him, I remember asking him, uh, because there's just a, a sentence or two passing mention of John Melby in all of the memoirs that she wrote. I said, did you ever feel left out? And he said, no. He said, I didn't because Lillian had a certain kind of story to tell, and I wasn't part of that particular story. And yet he, you know, to his dying day, I know, he valued his relationship, his, his love for Lillian Hellman, and would have married her if that was possible. And uh, he was investigated during the McCarthy period and, yes, essentially lost his job in the Foreign Service because of his connection with her. 
How many parallels do you draw to the time when she was a, a very prominent personality, a political personality, and to today? That's a good question. Um, in some ways, I, I, I'm trying to think of who, you know, who in the theater or even in film. I mean, people might talk about someone like Susan Sarandon, but here's Lillian Hellman, who's, uh, you know, a prominent playwright, a prominent screenwriter, uh, someone who uh, in so many ways uh, becomes a public figure. It's hard to think of someone quite like her today. It, the, the culture seems so fragmented. I mean, for one thing, uh, people still go to the theater, of course, on Broadway, but Broadway means something else now than it did in Lillian Hellman's day when you had playwrights like Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams, for example, or even Edward Albee a little bit later. The theater now is so much more a matter of, in a sense, Walt Disney and family entertainment. When you go to New York, serious plays are certainly still put on, but what playwright would we talk about in the same terms that we speak of Arthur Miller uh, or Lillian Hellman, the, the playwrights and even the novelists don't have the same kind of place in the culture that they did 30, 40, or 50 years ago. Does it feel more corporate to you now? Yes, it feels more corporate. And again, I don't want to deny that a lot of good work is being done in, in theater and film, but it's, it's become so dispersed. There is something still called Hollywood, but it's very different from, the, of course, the studio system, which effectively ended by the, the end of the 1950s. It seems more corporate. It seems more in spite of the relaxation of censorship compared to the old Hollywood films. It in, in some ways seems less uh, serious from a certain point of view. So who are the people that influenced her writing? We've talked about what influenced her writing, but who influenced her writing as well as her politics? Yes. It, in terms of the theater, she, for instance, she edited a collection of uh, uh, Anton Chekhov's. Chekhov's notion of theater and drama was, was a very powerful influence. Uh, we have to talk about late 19th and early 20th century realists like uh, Ibsen as well were very important. But also some of her own contemporaries as she was growing up, for instance, she recognized very early, much earlier than, than most reviewers or critics, what a great writer William Faulkner was. I mean, she, by the time he wrote his second novel, she was writing in the New York Tribune about him as, a, as an important writer. So she certainly was aware of people like Faulkner and Hemingway and saw them as examples of the kind of uh, writer with integrity that, that uh, she also wanted to become. And of course, Dashiell Hammett, uh, by the time she met him in the early 1930s, had established an enormous reputation for not only his mystery and detective stories and novels, but in a sense, uh, as a already beginning, really, as a, as a public figure supporting the, the political causes she would believe in. I was surprised at how often she relied on other people for their counsel in her writing. Yes, I think, I think that's the mark of a real professional. In Lillian Hellman's case, uh, she would go through draft after draft of her plays, not just her first play, The Children's Hour, but right through the later plays like The Autumn Garden in the 1950s. At one point, not being able to get a speech right, trying it again and again and again, and 
giving it to Hammett, who at that point had really stopped writing his own work. Uh, and she gave it to him, and he wrote this marvelous speech, finally putting together all the things that she wanted to say. And so she was she was selfless in that sense. In other words, what was most important was the was the work and the nature of the work. And she wasn't. I mean, she might get angry or frustrated about what Hammett would say about her work, but she kept coming back for that criticism. Things are not necessarily what they appear to be. And I'd like you to tell us what happened when she testified before the Un-American Activities Committee, history we should all know. Yes. uh, The sort of simple tale is of this playwright who, throughout the 1930s, supports liberal and radical causes, many what are called front organizations, that is, fronts for the Communist Party, protesting uh, the discrimination against black people, protesting, you know, really advocating uh, the kind of New Deal programs uh, that Franklin Roosevelt put through. That's all a part of who Lillian Hellman is. And then suddenly the politics shift by the end of the Second World War. The Soviet Union was an ally because we're getting into the Cold War period and this tension grows between the Soviet Union and the United States as world powers, suddenly people who were very, very strong advocates of this alliance with the Soviet Union are viewed with some suspicion. Uh, And this is what happens to Lillian Hellman and a whole category of writers, including Arthur Miller, who supported these, what were then considered to be left-wing causes. So Hellman is called to testify. And she's coming after a number of writers, including what were called the Hollywood Ten, the screenwriters, who eventually served some jail time. She's appearing in front of this committee, and everyone assumes is out to get her like he was out to get the other writers. And she comes prepared with a statement in which she makes this famous statement about not willing to kowtow in any way to uh, this year's Yeah, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions. Exactly. And what happens is she's got a statement to read. What's important about her appearance is that she, even though she's she's very, very angry, but she does not allow that anger to show, she appears as an upstanding citizen. Someone who says she does not want to bring bad trouble to people she's associated with, that she's willing to talk about herself, but not to others. Now, other writers had tried this approach, but she had this statement that she wanted to read. And even as she says she wants to read her statement, her attorney, very cleverly, Joseph Rao, begins to distribute the statement to the press and is able, and Hellman is part of this almost stage-managed event, very hard for someone to get the advantage on a congressional committee. You're the one, after all, who has to feel defensive. And she acts simply like a person with integrity who has nothing to hide, but doesn't want to get her friends and family in trouble. And uh, the result is, I think partly the fact that she was a woman was important. The fact that she was dressed and spoke so courteously to the committee, unlike a lot of the writers who showed contempt. She did have contempt for the House Committee on Un-American Activities, but she didn't allow it to show. Uh, it was a kind of persona she was presenting, uh, because offstage, so to speak, not in the hearing, 
she would she would say the kinds of things that other people were saying, condemning the committee. She put them in a bind. You know, how are they going to pick on this woman who looked like really the picture of integrity? She won the press war over this. You know, the, the headlines were that, you know, Lillian Hellman stands up to the, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. The irony, in a sense, is, or the, the other part of the story is not told, is that, is that she had been a member of the Communist Party uh, for at least a couple of years. She had supported all of these causes. If they had actually had the opportunity to, to, to grill her, the whole story would not have been such a melodrama. In other words, she turned her appearance into a Lillian Hellman play. So what about the Fifth Amendment? Well, uh, the, the writers and other uh, actors who appeared before the House Committee on Activities, American Activities often invoke, invoke the Fifth Amendment, that you, know, you have this right not to incriminate yourself. It doesn't mean I'm not talking because I'm guilty. It simply says I'm not going to give you any evidence to, uh, to turn against me. I have that right as a U.S. citizen to do that. She never really, the committee didn't last, the hearing didn't last long enough to, for her to be really branded as what were called Fifth Amendment communists. That is, you're a communist who is hiding behind the Fifth Amendment. She kind of avoided that, given her demeanor, uh, the strategy, and the, the really the cleverness of her attorneys, uh, Joseph Rao and Daniel Powell. Was this the turning point in the McCarthy hearings? It wasn't so much a uh, turning point for the hearings themselves. Uh, what, what really uh, did, did McCarthy in, did the House Committee on American Activities, what, what uh, led to, their, to the demise, uh, their power over people, was when they started to attack institutions of government. Once Joseph McCarthy began to go after not just the State Department, but when he went against the armed services, when he went against the army, which is going against the Pentagon, which is much bigger, by the way, than the State Department, to take that institution on was a strategic mistake uh, because uh, Joseph Welch, the, the, the attorney, you know, is famous for the statement in which he says to Joseph McCarthy, have you, sir, at last no sense of decency? He was, again, one of the few people who appeared before McCarthy or the House Committee on, on American Activities uh, who could, in a sense, turn the tables on them and make them seem less pa- patriotic than the witness was. You know, she traveled to places that could have been very dangerous to her, any American. Why did she go? Oh, I think there was this tremendous sense of curiosity. You know, she went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, she wasn't the only writer to do this. Langston Hughes did this. A number of writers went to Spain to express their solidarity. Martha Gellhorn was another one. I think Kelman felt one writer who had a tremendous influence on almost everybody was Andre Melrose. And Melrose wrote this novel, Man's Fate. And here we have a writer who's, who's talking about revolution in Asia and China. He uh, presents an example of the engaged writer that inspired uh, not just Lillian Hellman, but Ernest Hemingway, who also covered the Spanish Civil War. And it suddenly became a part of not every writer's persona, but for many writers in the 1930s, that kind of social engagement helped to define what they thought the position of the writer should be in the modern world. 
I thought it was pretty fascinating in your writing of this book that she was so despised by people, some would consider them her friends uh, who knew her, and they refused to even talk with you about her. Yes. She likewise did not want anyone talking about her personally. How did you get around that? How did you gain access to get all you did to write her book? Well, I learned something from one of the people who was willing to talk, poet Richard Wilbur. He brought up the subject that several that Lillian Hellman had directed several of her friends, including him, to speak only to a fellow who she had designated as her authorized biographer, and that certainly was not me. And I said to Wilbur, well, what did you do or what did you say when uh, Lillian asked you not to speak to anyone except the person that she designated as her biographer. And he said, well, I told her essentially, you know, uh, it was my experience and not just hers. And that I couldn't simply accept the directive from her not to talk about people when she was essentially telling me I couldn't talk about my own experience. It involved her, but it was my experience. I interviewed him fairly early on when I was researching the Hellman biography, and that that really taught me something because I would it didn't always work, but I would often say to people, "Well, what you're saying is you you have been censored. You're you're you feel you're not able to talk about your own experience," and that sometimes was enough. And then in other cases, there were people who had been close to Hellman. But also, uh, and I found this with some of my other biographical subjects, they were perfectly prepared and they understood the person I was writing about had a dark side, that there were conflicts, that there are things that really should not be ignored. It's almost like someone in your family who you love, and yet you realize that person is a deeply flawed human being. And I think that that was helpful. The other thing that was helpful about writing about Lillian Hellman is she knew so many people. It's almost like a stockbroker doing cold calls. I call up people. Sometimes they are cold calls because I don't have their address. I didn't have their, their, uh, couldn't write to them. And I would just write them up. I would just call them. Sometimes I'd make the sale and sometimes I didn't. What about the people who really despised her so much they just didn't want to talk about her? I remember a call to the playwright Ruth Getz, who was a friend of Hellman's, and uh, this was a case where I I didn't have her address. I had from another biographer I'd gotten Getz's phone number, and I explained to her that I was going to write about Lillian. She said, I don't want to talk about her. I do not want to talk about Lillian Hellman. And I said, well, that in itself is interesting. You know, is is there anything you you could say to illuminate why you feel this way. And she whispered into the phone, she said, she was a viper. <laughs> and that's all I got, but that was pretty good. That's a good get. Uh, as, as a response. Well, you know, it could be very high-handed. You know, I call her place melodrama. She believed in right and wrong. Therefore, if you got in an argument with her, you were on the wrong side, you were really wrong. You know, you weren't, oh, you have your point. <laughs> it wasn't with Lily Helmet. You didn't have your point. There was a point, and you didn't get it. So that, that really, you know, ruffled certain people. And certain people in the theater had to deal with her, whether they liked it or not. But once she wasn't on the scene, because I began my biography a few years after she died, 
that also made a difference. And then, of course, you have to be careful that you're not just talking to people who have grudges. But, you know, I interviewed close to 100 people. And when you interview that many people, you're interviewing all types, all walks of life, people who knew her at different phases. And you begin to see these patterns uh, so that you don't become the captive of just one, you know, one person, one one way of looking at your subject. Well, well, yours is a serious critical biography of Lillian Hellman. I have to say it also has a good dose of dish. Yes. It was a, kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Yes. Tell us, spill some of the dish here. We're talking Dorothy Parker, Mary McCarthy. There was just a, a fount of gossip. When my book was reviewed in the New York Times book review on the front page, the reviewer called it dishy. And I'm not a dishy biography biographer by definition, so to speak. That is, uh, I've written several biographies, and they wouldn't all be called dishy, that's for sure, or gossipy. But in Helmut's case, she both liked to gossip and, of course, was gossiped about a lot. When I interviewed uh, the writer Diana Trilling, who was friends with Helmut for many years until they had a falling out, mainly about politics, Diana Trilling described a relationship with uh, Lillian Hellman is really a kind of seduction. Whether you were a man or a woman, Lillian seduced you. And Trilling was not talking about having sex with Lillian Hellman, but nevertheless, it was a it was a sensual, a kind of a sexual experience. Uh, she was a great cook. She wined and dined you. You know, she had a wonderful place at Martha's Martha's Vineyard. Uh, she was your friend. She knew people in government. She knew people in theater. She knew people in Hollywood. Uh, some people really resented this. Mary McCarthy, who disagreed with, with Hellman on politics in particular, also didn't much care for her as a person and got in trouble when she went on the Dick Cavett show and said that every word that Hellman writes is a lie, including and and the. Uh, and Hellman sued her. Everyone thought for sure McCarthy would win the case because everyone thought of Lillian Hellman as a public figure. And when you're a public figure, in this country at least, it's very difficult to uh, win a libel case because public figures are considered fair game. And unless you deliberately, maliciously have intent to harm, and many people regarded McCarthy's comments as obvious exaggerations. You know, every word she writes is a lie, is, is hyperbole right there. But Hellman actually found a judge, Judge Baer, who declared she was not a public figure. And so Hellman was able to pursue the case. Case never went to court because Hellman died before it was uh, actually prosecuted. I think she would have lost the case. But that's the kind of person she was. She, she did have grudges, you know, she did have these very dark sides to her as well. And people love to talk about it. I remember uh, interviewing Kermit Bloomgarden's wife, Virginia. The, the, just minor details, but it was part of the dish, so to speak. She would say, you know, when they would come to pick up uh, Lillian to go to, to the theater or to some event or something, she said that Lillian was always ready and she remembered this one time, their car pulling up, and there was Lillian on the street, hands on her hips, tapping her foot. Tap, 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 and impatience. Where are you? Let's get on with it. 
Well, one of the other things I loved about your book was your humor. Oh, yeah. I really worked to land your punchlines in the narration. Speaking of that, how do you feel about the audiobook platform for your books? Oh, I love the audio platform for my books. And there are certain narrators, you're certainly one of them. Thank you. Who do capture the cadence of my words. And I don't know whether anyone would really realize this when they read my books, but my first ambition was not, not to be a writer, it was to be an actor. And as a biographer, I often, I often think my acting background is important because that's what actors do. They, they inhabit a role. They put themselves into another character. And that's what I attempt to do when, when I write a book. Lillian Hellman was both funny in the sense that she said funny things and had a sense of humor, tremendous sense of humor. But there was also something comical about her that is all the outrage, uh, you know, all the over-the-top business. You know, she, she was always theatrical, and I'm, I'm really attracted to those theatrical personalities. And I think you capture that very well. This is not your only biography. I know you've famously written about Marilyn Monroe. Yes. What is the secret of writing a good biography? I think the secret is, uh, for me, and I hope it is for other biographers too, whether you're right or not, you're, you have this feeling, this conviction, I have this feeling anyway, that I am the person to write about this particular person. If there's something, or I hope many things, I understand about this subject uh, that others don't or uh, hasn't been fully explained. And even in the case of Marilyn Monroe, when I was writing back in the 1980s uh, and researching her life, I started with the conviction that there were certain things about her that were not well understood and that my background as an actor uniquely prepared me to, to write that biography. So in the biographies that I write anyway, there's always, in a sense, a kind of autobiography going on. I have an aside for you about John Michael Hayes. He wrote the Children's Hour screenplay oh, yes. based on Lillian's play. I wrote a story about the feud between Hayes and Alfred Hitchcock for an international screenwriting magazine. Hayes said it was the most accurate portrayal of them and the feud that he mm. had ever read. Wonderful. He gave me an autographed placard from his collection of Rear Window for kind of an attagirl. Ah. And coming from such a phenomenal writer like Mr. Hayes, and this was just a couple years before he died, well, you can bet more than a single tear of gratitude was shed when I received it. It's really nice. That's a dish for you, but I thought you might appreciate that as yeah. a writer who writes about other people. Yeah, it's wonderful when you get those gifts. I've gotten a few as a biographer. They're oh. they really tributes. Very touching. Yes. What is the greatest non-award accolade you've ever received for your biographical work? Some of the best things that have been said about my work are people that have just responded to my website. You know, and said, you know, say say things about my book, about my persistence, uh, things they learned about the subject, which mean more in some ways than than what the professional critics say, who are sometimes very jaded or trying to establish their own authority. What's wonderful for a writer, at least it has been for me, is just to hear from people who are just expressing, you know, their their love, their enthusiasm for the book they just read, not because they're going to write about it or because it fits into some kind of position or platform or program uh, that 
they're pursuing, but they just picked up this book and loved it, and they wanted to tell the author. To me, that's that's almost better than anything. So what is your website? It's just carlrollinson.com. It's, it's got a description of all of my biographies, links to various reviews, lots of photographs, and some discussions where I, I tell readers about what went into the books and how I went about doing them. Links to interviews like this one, where people can, can hear me, have the experience of listening to the questions and thinking about the process of doing biography. Is there something you'd like to add to leave us with regarding Lillian Hellman? She's one of the most entertaining subjects I've ever worked on. And I think what impressed me about her was her ability not only to do those plays, but to also have that career in Hollywood and to have then this later career as, a, as an autobiographer, as someone writing memoirs to to, in a sense, have these three almost equal phases of her career was was really quite impressive. I think there's that about her and her uh, indomitability that really strikes me uh, right almost to the day she died. She was working on a book with a friend of hers, Peter Feebleman, and really she was just maybe weeks, a month or two away from dying and she couldn't see. She had really was, for all intents and purposes, blind. Peter says, how are you doing, Hillman? And there wasn't any self-pity. Uh, there wasn't any grousing. There wasn't any complaining, although she certainly could be a big complainer. But when he just asked her directly, you know, the only thing she said to him is she said, I have this terrific writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought... Wow, that is tremendous. Not, oh my God, I can't see, I can't do this, I can't. No, just, I have this writer's block. Priorities, priorities. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining CP's Deep Dive, Carl Rollison, author of Lillian Hellman, Her Life and Legend. Yes, thank you, Colleen. I really appreciate the, the chance to talk to you. It's a book that matters if you care about politics or women's rights or writing, plays, films, and American culture during the McCarthy era, and also biographies. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with another author whose important nonfiction book I have narrated, author whose works are making a difference in our world. Thanks for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. We record at Bayman Studio. To contact me, email CP's Deep Dive, that's C-P-Z, Deep Dive, one word, at gmail.com. Chris is at BaymanStudio.com. I'm at ColleenPatrick.com. Let's make a difference.